You guys, I have a vaccine update. I did it. I got it. It wasn't that bad. So for everyone who has needle anxiety like me, just look away and it was fine. And then my arm hurt for a little bit and then it was great, but 10 out of 10 recommend. <laughs> Definitely get that vaccine. It's not that bad. I was freaking out for nothing. But anyways, of course, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. Today, I am joined by Jeff, who is the VP of Product and Solution Marketing at Couchbase, and by Mike, who is the founder and CEO of Glue, which is a security software company. So thank you guys so much for joining me today. Mike, how are you doing? Great, Amy. Thanks for having me on the show. And Jeff, welcome to the show. This is your first episode as well, even though we've had a few couch-based guests in the past couple of weeks. And, but what I want to talk to you guys about today is about digital identity and extreme personalization and how we can protect our digital identities while still receiving extremely personalized messages. So Jeff, could you explain to me what extreme personalization is to start with? Sure. So I, I think it's ultimately the application design practice of building a, an application in across all kinds of different industries that is blending together people and the products and the services or activities that, that they're performing in their digital lives. So it could be a, we have examples of, of booking travel. And so I am a member of multiple loyalty programs. Those are actually personalization programs. I actually have, while I'm browsing for my trip, um, I have time sensitivity to uh, associated with when I want to go and when I want to come back. That mm-hmm. kind of information is also personalization profile kinds of information. And then there's the storing in my loyalty profile. I like the aisle seat and I like to give my wife the, the window seat. Matching the, my particular preferences of things that you know, are collected about me and that does you know, happen very regularly to this vast array of product, services, activity catalogs that we're all using and interacting with all the time. That's a a challenge for application developers right now and is going to be continuing to be a challenge as we only become more and more mobile. We only become more and more both sensitive to information we want to track. Congratulations on getting your vaccine. That's a, that's a great thing. And it's very likely going, you're going to be asked that at some point in time later in order to get into a venue or to get into a, a congregation space. We're seeing that just that kind of information plus this uh, the ability to know when I'm passing through or what room I'm in in my house. There's mm-hmm. a Amazon Sidewalk kind of application is going to end up, it, it is akin to these kind of hyper-personalized sets of environments. And they create a really great user experience, no doubt. I've got countless customers who are doing this solely to deliver me the kind of experience I want. I've got, uh, you know, cruise lines that are that characterize themselves as the mm-hmm. largest experience enterprise in the in the world, and it's all about trying to anticipate your wants and needs before you even ask, and you know, right. give you concierge level kinds of capabilities wherever you go. But this is going to trickle down not from big IT budgets, but down to knowing what my my breakfast preference is when I go to my local diner. Right. That's going to happen too. So it's, so, you know, it's that range. Jeff, my question for you then is, how long have you been the VP of product and solutions marketing? We're taking a quick left turn. <laughs> a quick left turn. At Couchbase, I've uh, done this for about a year and a half. At other employers, I've either run marketing departments or been in charge of product marketing for more than 20 years. Okay. And 
so my question then is, when did you see the start of extreme personalization? I think I was talking about it and recognizing that this is a, a, a regular behavior. Jeez, dating as far back as, let's say, 19, the 1990s. The, the first instance of it being my own security paranoia of getting a fast track and knowing that the, the fast track toll, toll taking device which I live in the Bay Area, I go over the Golden Gate Bridge all the time. It's automated the payment process, which that's convenient. I like that's personalization. But what I also didn't like was the security implications of knowing where I was going, how fast I was going, and, and clocking the timing distances. So I was really reticent to, to be adopting the fast track thing until the convenience of not having to stop at the toll booth outweighed my paranoia of getting a speeding ticket sometime in the future yeah. or getting my insurance rates going up sometime in the future. So I, that, that was one of the early earliest instances of mm. when I was recognizing, all right, this is happening to me regardless of whether you know I opt into it or not in many cases. Yeah. And you know, ultimately for that, that service, I was forced to opt, opt into it. But I like the convenience now. But that, you know, it, it dates back quite some time. Yeah, because I was thinking that with extreme personalization, it's something that dates back for sure, but has really ramped up in the digital age of data collection, would you say? Because definitely more people in the 21st century and like more recently in the past few years even have moved to this expectation of having that extremely personalized relationship with brands where they are able to build off your example, say they know where when I'm going to go on vacation, they know that I'm interested in tropical destinations, they know whatever. And mm-hmm. so that experience as a brand takes you to the next level. But right. then we get into this, as you said, the security implications of knowing all of that information. And so that's where I want to flip over to you, Mike, on the security implications of having a digital identity and what that entails, because with this extreme rise of extreme personalization and everybody collecting my data, how can I protect my digital identity? Yeah, that's a good question. It seems like the system is, I think you have to separate security and privacy here. And because a lot of what we're talking about is really the privacy of it. Who gets to see my information? And do I get some consent in that process? And it's, I think we're at a time where the technology has leapt ahead of our ability to actually make rules. I always talk about tools and rules, and Jeff and I are very much on the tool side, writing software to enable companies to implement digital identity and digital experiences. But the rule side of this is, okay, do I have a right to control the use of my personal data? Or do I have a right to update that data? And do I have a right to control who to share that information with? I, I feel like our rules and our laws are behind. So not that I'm pessimistic in this area, but but I think that what we see in the enterprise space is that customers really want it. Like you said, you're expecting this experience. And, and I do think it can be a, a competitive advantage to companies who can use this technology well and who can also, if they can figure out how to make you part of the process and empower you to control your data, I do think that's a competitive advantage to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. But when we have this extreme personalization, like coming into the front door, how has online authentication evolved as we are getting more into extreme personalization? 
Yeah, we see it as a big challenge for companies. So the front door is basically you authenticate. Everybody's familiar with putting in a username and password. Mm -hmm. But we don't think about what happens after that. And and this is really why where we've been collaborating with Couchbase is that so after the the authentication, of course, has to happen fast. Nobody wants to wait around for that. But as you're traversing a website or your mobile app is calling APIs and doing all this stuff for you on the back end, or you're walking around on that cruise ship and your IoT device is interacting with a lot of devices or a lot of systems, that initial identification needs to be conveyed um, to these different services. And so this is one of the, the challenges of personalization is that because this centralized identity information is being shared with all these different services, its availability is critical and also the performance is critical. And what we found is that with this personalization comes more and more demand for concurrency. And then that's where we started looking to companies like Couchbase to be able to help us to scale out and utilize cl uh, the cloud computing technologies more efficiently with a database. And databases mm -hmm. weren't necessarily designed for cloud. What do you mean by availability? So most so consumer-facing applications tend to be multi-data center. Okay. So if one data center goes down, you're not the service is not offline. Oh, like no, okay. nobody wants to be like see the their Netflix TV spinning. Like that's going to be you're going to be grumpy about that. Yeah, or run into a situation <laughs> where your front door is locked. It, it is you know, if that is the initial and ongoing interface between you and your customer, you've got to always have a mechanism to allow the customer to get in. Otherwise, you're losing revenue, you're losing customer experience points with your customer. And the cloud has been great at this because we we have um, never has it been so easy to do multi-data center deployments. Like when I started in the business in the 90s, it was all about, quote unquote, disaster recovery and building multiple mm -hmm. data centers. And now you just like, let's use Amazon and Google and Microsoft and Red Hat and IBM. They all have networks for us and we can just jump on them and get the, this type of business continuity. Yes. Actually, I wanted to build off of that. Mike, when did you found Glue? Found? Is that a word? Yes, that is a word. <laughs> oh, um, my gosh. It's been 12 when years now. did you start? <laughs> so we, we started in 2009, which in a lot of ways was it was at the end of an era. It was the beginning of the cloud era. And so it was it, 12 years doesn't seem like a long time. But in terms of what's happened in the industry, it oh, really yeah. is. For sure. And we started, I'd, I'd been working in the business probably um, for about 15 years before I started the company. And I just felt that wouldn't it be great if there was an open source digital identity platform? At the time, the, the business was dominated by Oracle and IBM and Computer Associates. And I was like, why isn't there an open source one of these? And everyone must want that. And so we started Glue really to build an open source digital identity platform. And, and we've been... It, it was way harder than I thought to do it, but we're, and we're still at it. But yeah, that, that was the origin of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it is crazy, like the security implications, the growth in the past 12 years of digital in general, definitely a good industry for you to get in, I feel. <laughs> yeah. And, so it, it's caused us to pivot because there's also been this huge migration to the cloud. And so I think all of our starting assumptions got challenged as with the emergence of cloud computing and cloud providing. So it's been a lot of pivoting, but yeah, we have, we are really lucky in that we're in a very fast growing industry. So yeah, we couldn't ask for a more interesting dynamic market. Mm. Wait, as a authentication company, 
how did cloud computing change your direction? So we started around the same time as Okta, or, or as Glue is our customers have always been more on the high end. Uh, customers who have economies of scale to host their own infrastructure. They have IT departments, they have projects. And we've always catered to the really high-end type of use cases. But when we started in 2009, there was no Okta, there was no Auth0 or Microsoft Azure AD. So mm -hmm. th these companies really changed the market a lot because mm -hmm. now it's almost become the de facto where standard where you'd say, oh, why am I going to host this complicated infrastructure if Okta or Auth0 can do it for me? And that had huge impact on the market. So the right. software, the self-hosted software vendors in the market, all of us have trended to cater towards the high end and the whole middle market and SMB part of the market just evaporated. And so is what you do related then to like something Azure where they are doing like 2FA or that kind of user authentication, like front yes. door experience? Okay. Yeah. So everyone's familiar with Google, right? So you, you've mm -hmm. done that. So Glue, if you wanted to host your own Google identity system, that's what Glue does. Oh, so okay. we, we walk, you present you with one or more login pages. And then after you've authenticated, we we would issue tokens to, to other service providers. Like, for example, have you ever gone to a website and you hit Google login and it says, this app, this website wants to see your calendar or something. Mm -hmm. um, that's OAuth working in the background. Mm. Um, so that's the authorization that I'm talking about where okay. um, you have to, because Google needs, you, Google doesn't know if you want to, it should let this third party update your calendar. So the personalization, I think, extends here. Here's where, kind of where it gets complicated. It's, it's if you own everything, it's really straightforward. If uh, Google doesn't have to ask me if they, if they, I can share my email with Gmail, like they own that. Mm -hmm. But if it's some third party, they don't know and they have to ask you. And, and this is where we've seen a lot of change from, let's say, the early days of the Internet, where it's we have this system of interconnected services that are that need our data. And that's created a lot more demand for this data. And, and it's really nobody, I think, 20 years ago would imagine would have imagined like the scale of these systems and how many transactions per second you need to actually process in order to meet the expectations of, of like consumers. What is the expectation? Well, everyone just expects everything to work. So <laughs> it has yeah. to work and it has to work fast. A billion authentications, just to give you an idea, a billion authentications per day was 60,000 transactions per second on Couchbase. Okay. These are hard numbers <laughs> to achieve. Yeah. And, and our disks haven't gotten a lot faster. So in order to, to really get this performance, we need software. The, so the, the hardware that, you know, that we can't get the disk spindle to go any faster. So in order to really get the scale, we need to put more disks to work. And in order to do that, we need more, we need better software. And at the same time, we also have to drive down operational complexity. Because if you need to train for a year to be a proficient at operating these highly complex multi-data center clusters, then it's not your total cost or ownership goes way up and companies won't be able to do it. So this is another area where we felt Couchbase helps our customer deliver these systems at scale. Yeah, I can't imagine 60,000 transactions per second is 
hard to even fathom or a billion authentications is hard to even fathom but okay cool and as far as like front building off of the front door experience does the captcha kind of experience have anything to do with this too where you have to select all of the traffic lights that's well so that's a way to tell if you're a human and not a hacker so we have all these strategies for basically preventing fraud and mm-hmm. and mitigating risk so biometric authentication testing if you're a human looking at your ip address i heard that google looks at a hundred different things so you only you know you do a couple of things but in the background they're looking at your session and they're doing all this fraud and risk analysis to see oh. is it really you and do they need to do take extra steps to mitigate that risk. So that's part of the authentication. What 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 we call authentication is at Glue, we call it the authentication workflow because that yeah. workflow is often multiple steps and then adjusts based upon the risk. Uh, so it's okay. a, called adaptive authentication. So you're telling me it doesn't actually matter whether I select that photo with the tiny little piece of traffic light in it or not. No, that's just one piece of data that they're using um, okay. to tell. Yeah, um, the they're probably not going to let you proceed without that. <laughs> it's not the be-all, end-all. They're not going to be like, right. oh, she's a robot. Didn't get that one. <laughs> it helps. It helps It helps uh, mitigate like probably some sp- uh, a whole set of, of risks. Because if we can let computers impersonate humans, then they can do it much more quickly. I bet you it, it does. Our customers ask for it. We do it. And there's a lot of theories. I, I always say that I wish people spend more time actually improving authentication technology and less mm-hmm. time detecting intrusions. Because wouldn't it be better to prevent the hacker from getting in the first place than in detecting that he's there or she's yep. there? Um, sure. But but I frequently um, um, wonder why, because 80% of the breaches, the root cause is, is failure to properly identify the person. And so this is the, the vast majority is a result of bad authentication. Shouldn't we invest more there? But it seems like a disproportionate part of the investment in security is in other mm-hmm. places. I always wonder why that is. Mike, what do you think about the AI kind of way that we're go- trend that we're going into where they can tell based on user behavior whether that user is the correct user or not you know what i mean keystroke monitoring and like the behavior that they do quote unquote regular behavior when they collect all that data what do you think about that I like that kind of technology because it doesn't impact the user experience. Although some of it is really more fraud detection, not actually authentications when you're asserting, I am Amy because I know yeah. the password or I have a presented my biometric. A lot of times what what you're talking about is happening after authentication. Mm, they might be monitoring breach. your voice. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, you call your bank and you, you authenticate, but then you continue to interact with your bank. And then they detect through voice that your voice is not consistent with the, with the mm-hmm. past pattern and that might throw off an alert. But it's actually, so it, it, is it authentication or fraud detection? But in but, general, I like that kind of thing because it doesn't Im- necessarily impact the user experience. But let's say that there was a stolen endpoint and they had like a sticky note with the password on there. Theoretically, mm-hmm. they could go get past the authentication and then at that point this new kind of software would let you know that user is not the user that's how it goes in my mind anyways <laughs> yeah, well, yeah i think that's true and then based on whatever other perhaps behaviors or location information where does that 
endpoint device go? Does mm. it go somewhere brand new? Those kind of things are also inputs to the fraud detection mm-hmm. algorithms. We and fraud detection is another major uh, uh, use case for Couchbase in that you know gathering that data and then making sure you know rec- doing the pattern recognition on whether or not the the device itself that you're watching is now in a brand new location that you've never ever seen before and it's it doesn't fit any other type of pattern that the user has established in the past that kind of information is, is what feeds the, the fraud detectors and then if you start using the pay, the transaction payment mechanism on it that's where the, the 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 good user experience comes in that oh that transaction doesn't look right we're going to yeah. freeze it which is what your, mm-hmm. your banks are likely to do but it's all in many cases it's the same fraud detector that's out there keeping watch over all of this. Yep. And Jeff, I would like to chat about the future of authentication and the front door experience overall. What are your thoughts as the solutions marketing person at Couchbase for trends of in this area or where do you see this kind of technology going? Well, so what was interesting is last year triggered a lot of brand new behaviors in all of us. Mm, yeah. Right? So when, when the way we saw everything was for an IT organization, two things, ha- one of two things happened to them and so in many cases both. One was when your users disappeared from where they used to be and congregate, they all went online. And then they created that a concurrency problem that Mike was talking about. They're hitting your system, whether it's your first authentication or the activities that they're doing afterwards. They're hitting that so frequently that they run into ex- experience problems. Your, the, the, your system's too slow. It's not able to serve me what I want right now. And there's a likelihood that because the user is not accustomed to doing that all the time, that their frustration level is going to go through the roof really quickly. Mm-hmm. So you get a dissatisfied user just because yep. they tried your online experience. So you know, that's one driver of, man, we got to change this, right? Yeah. The other driver is the opposite. It's the reaction to where'd everybody go? Mm-hmm. And you have to change fun- or add functionality or do something different to actually pivot so that you can indeed chase down your customers, your users to all of these new locations that they happen to be. And there's perhaps a likelihood there that your legacy system that you're, you've been depending on for five or 10 years doesn't have that flexibility built into it. So your ability to, to move the iceberg is really difficult when you want to be as nimble as possible right now, because back in August or a year ago from now, or a year ago past, right, there was this like reaction of really either where did everybody go or, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed like it's Black Friday. You had either of those situations happening. So what were we, So those are now the new rules of the game. Mm-hmm. You need to have flexibility. You need to have availability, as Mike was talking about a minute ago. Yeah. But then imagine, project where these things are going to happen and, and how we've been talking about them. Yeah. They created these the need for these new smart kind of environments. And what's the other thing going on right now is the deployment of 5G networks everywhere, which as by design, they're supposed to give you this incredibly fast network in small locations, in, in specific like mesh environments. So when I, the cruise ship is a great one because I've got a customer that does that, but there's you know, also your hotel and also your grocery store or the, the big box store or the restaurant you're in. Pretty much wherever any you know, sets of people congregate and, or are going to re-congregate as, as the world opens up again on an airplane, in a transit center, on a bus, right? All of these things are going to turn into these smart environments. 
because the user expectation of, okay, now I know I'm online and I can do all these things, that's very high. But then the ability to create a better experience because of that. They know where you are. They know you're on your commute. They know that you're probably listening to an audiobook, but you can come up with ways in which to, you know, deliver that, again, that experience really effectively and seamlessly, as long as they know who you are and, and, and can back match it to past patterns of behavior or things, information they've collected in the, in the past and do so in a trustworthy way. But it's these smart environments. They're going to be everywhere. You're, you know, and this is what even the second generation evolution of your smart home, right? You know, that they've, they're, they're warning us about right now all, all over the web of Amazon Sidewalk is a new mesh networking mechanism that's going to integrate. They take advantage of the fact that the, the Nest or the Echo that I have in my house probably can still talk to my neighbor's Nest ecosystem in their house. And the, the little key fob uh, tracker on the dog, you know, on the neighborhood dog, as it goes by my house, it can tell it just went by here. And then as it goes by the na- my neighbor's house, it went by over there. And the owner of the dog can look up and go, where's my dog? Right? That's a better user experience, but that's also part of this you know, evolution of these kind of smart environments that's going to, going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. And where do you see this going with the notion that I'd be terrified if a technology could track where my dog was? You know what I mean? Like the de- like the age of decentralization and caring about your digital persona and your privacy. How can we combat that with the rise or how can they both rise at the same time, extreme personalization and the privacy issues. There's, uh, uh, and I think Mike can play off this too, is it's, it, it, there ultimately will be always the case where we can point back to, you opted into this in some form. Yeah. And therefore you can opt out of it in some form. The opting out, Google tracks my location information on my phone for only three months. That's actually the, the degree to which they, they allow you to say, stop tracking me and don't keep that history that far back. But I expect that that's gonna be the case with this they do Amazon Sidewalk thing. They're telling you, turn, your, turn off these features on your Echo if you wanna opt out of it. You don't want your network bandwidth to be consumed but with their, their devices and the convenience they're offering to somebody that's not you. So you, it, there's gonna be a, an increased balance in that opt-in, opt-out thing. And that's going to take place not only at the, the micro level of like me inside of my house, but yeah. also at the macro level of me living in California or me living in Germany, where data residency requirement laws have also popped up mm-hmm. so that a the resident server of my profile is going to live closer to me than, than rest in Virginia. And I'm in California. So it's going to be, it'll start to be things like that where the degree of control that I, I'm ultimately allotted is going to need to go up. So you can do ultimately determine how much you know opt-in stuff you do and you don't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mike, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the rise of the need for security, privacy security, and the direction that authentication is going to go into address it. Like I said before, I'm on the tool side and the glue server, and this is more, I think you have to separate the personal and the business here. On the personal side, I'm not paranoid about my data. I have a lot mm-hmm. of apps running on my phone, but I try to minimize them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, a range of how people feel about how much they want to share. And I'm more like, I won't have an Amazon Echo in my house, for example, but but I'm not a, I, I won't not use social networks either. I'm on, on Instagram too. So I'm somewhere in the middle. And at a business level, you know, it's interesting because the Glue server can be used to help the companies implement systems 
that give people control of their privacy by enabling them to consent into services. And yeah. so Glue is very supportive of this type of use case. But we also have the opposite use case at Glue, where we want to achieve maximum accountability. For example, in a Department of Defense application, we want to know, did this person log in at this time and do this thing? So we have an audit trail. So you can say that type of application of the Glue server is privacy degrading because we don't want privacy there. We want the opposite of privacy. We want account complete accountability. So on the technology side, I would say we've designed the Glue server to let you choose what degree of privacy you want to offer and to have implement features that enable companies to give users more control. This is There's also a philosophical or, or ethical question, let's say, that I don't think I'm qualified to answer about the direction our society is going with regard mm-hmm. to how we protect that privacy and and how companies have exploited it. There's a very good documentary called The Social Dilemma, um, which I recommend. And I think that does a pretty good job in in two hours of exploring like some of the edges of that conversation. And which Mm -hmm. is definitely, I think, as a society, I think it's going to take us a long time the the rules follow the tools, by, but there's True a enough, considerable yes. delay. Mm. And I'm, I'm not sure that this will be solved in my career trajectory. Mm-hmm. I'm 51, so maybe I have another 15 years or so. I think that these things might take longer to sort out than people think. And that yeah. in the meantime, we might find ourselves in a situation where companies are exploiting this opportunity where we're in the wild west of data aggregation. I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm in a similar (laughs) boat to you in terms of caring about my data privacy. Like, I don't have an echo, but I, I use social media. Actually, I might take it even one step further than you because I let Google see all of my location data. I let them track mm-hmm. it. And that, but that is because I listened to this podcast, which I highly recommend. It's called To Live and Die in LA. And it is like a murder mystery podcast where the woman who died was found because she had her Google location data turned yeah. on. So I was like, okay, solve my murder. That's fine. Track my data, <laughs> send it to third party companies, whatever. Not. Cool. Yes, that, yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly the, the opt-in kind of case is, well, yes. that, that value far outweighs the <laughs> what, what my ongoing thought of my value of knowing where I am right now or where I was last week. Very true. And yeah, in some cases there are very valid situations like that one. Um, yeah. I'm more afraid of my take... body never being found than Google having my data. I have a friend who says if they take our Google away, there'll be a revolution. If they try and once you have these platforms and, and this level of convenience, and then you contemplate a life without Google Maps or something, or ways that actually if you took them away, people would be, they might actually revolt. <laughs> oh, no, I would not. I would not survive without Google Maps. I don't, like I'm speechless. I can't. Oh, even. I, 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 I think we all agree on that, right? But the you know, the what we're finding right now, as everything evolves, is that it's that not only the how am I going to get from here to 20 miles away, but the the granularity of your location information is going to keep getting more and more valuable. So my phone knowing that I'm in my office rather than my living room is could be you know, uh, the difference between what shows up on my television here, what shows up on my television upstairs, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, or recognizing that it's my kids upstairs and not, not an adult kind of thing. So it might scope down what's available upstairs versus what's not. Yeah, the uh, that location 
the value of location data is very, very high. And, yes. uh, and, and the return on that value of location data is also very high. So yeah. you know, that's the thing we end up, I, I, I think, giving up on. The value of my health data, right, is also super, super high and not something that I really want every application on my phone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I th- actually, I think that Google, like location data ha- and GPS technology might have to get a little better to tell if you're in your living room versus your office. Uh, I think Google's location technology is accurate down within a city block. So it's still a little bit like sometimes not Come as Come on, accurate. you know it's better than that. Your Uber yeah. picks you up at the address and it maps you at, at the exact address. It's within a couple of feet. If you're outside, I think yeah. um, if they have the GPS, it's a couple of feet. If you're in a big inter- interior, then they're using the Wi-Fi um, yeah. triangulation yeah. that's not yeah. as accurate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. fact that they've figured out that they need to do both is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you, Jeff and Mike, for joining me on this episode of the Hacker Noon podcast. Jeff, if we want to find you and what you're working on at Couchbase, where can we look? You can find me on uh, LinkedIn. I'm Jeff Morris, one word three at, at LinkedIn. You can find me also at jeff.morris at couchbase.com. And the you know, goodies we're working on, we're about to roll out version seven of the database itself. It adds in great stuff like distributed transactions everywhere so that we can support the buy, buy the service or update the, the records across the board or help, help Mike systems to make sure that they know what the current IP address of the phone, of the phone is. Thank got, got that capability going in. But uh, yeah, lots of good stuff going on at Couchbase. Amazing. And Mike, where can we find you and Glue? Glue.org is probably the best way to contact me. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, of course. I'm NYNY Mike, New York. I'm originally a New Yorker. I'm still a Yankees fan. And if you're if you want to see my vacation pictures, and those would be on Instagram, as I mentioned, but for my work stuff, uh, glue.org is uh, the company website. And I should also put in a quick plug from for my podcast. I have a business podcast called Open Source Underdogs, opensourceunderdogs.com where I, I interview the founders of open source uh, companies, the founders and CEOs. And we've been doing that uh, for a couple of years. And so I'm also, you can find uh, contact me from there too. Great. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Mike. If you like this episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast, don't forget to subscribe and like our channels. You can find us at Hacker Noon on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, And as always, stay fresh. Happy internetting. I will see you later on. Goodbye.